Welcome to the MedFaber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, everybody. We've got an amazing show today. Our guest is Mike Wilson. Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and Chief Investing Officer for Morgan Stanley, and one of the biggest bears on the street today. Today's episode, Mike starts by touching on the price action we've seen so far in 2023, which he says is driven by global liquidity instead of fundamental factors. Then he gets into his outlook for the rest of the year. He has a non-consensus view that we're in the early days of an earnings recession and expects earnings for the S&P 500 this year to come in around $195 compared to the street average of 210 to 215. Before we let Mike go, we have him share what he's positive on in the US. He explains why operational efficiency is the factor he likes most right now and why areas like industrials, financials, commodities, and even some technology names fit that criteria. Now, before we get to the episode, I know all you subscribe to the Idea Farm by now, but did you know the Idea Farm is on Twitter, LinkedIn, and even Instagram and TikTok? Check the links in the show notes to give it a follow on all of our social media channels. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you, man. I'm great. Where do we find you today? So I'm in my office in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, nice sunny day here for uh, March and looking forward to spring. I am too. I haven't been in New York in many years. It's on my to-do list for the springtime. Well, there's a lot going on in markets. It's been an eventful couple of years. I thought we'd start with a quote of yours. So if you didn't say it, you can exit out, but I'm going to attribute it to you. But I liked it so much, I thought we'd begin here. It says... Bear markets are like a hall of mirrors designed to confuse investors and take their money. What do you mean by that? Can you tell us a little more? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I've been doing this a long time. And so I've, I've kind of learned that lesson the hard way. But, uh, but look, I mean, I think we're in the situation now. And this is really, this really refers kind of to the last three or four months where I do believe that a lot of the price action is being determined by non-fundamental factors. The main one being 
the global liquidity, which has improved significantly since October. The source of those funds has been mostly the Bank of Japan, which is you know aggressively defending its yield curve control. China's reopening, which is you know putting uh, capital back into the system, uh, which is more than offsetting you know what the Fed is trying to do, which is tighten it as as well as the ECB, and that. Liquidity has created some price action that has been very challenging for fundamental investors, not just me, but my clients. You know, our clients here, we talk to them every day. And I would say since the beginning of the year, you know, the movement in stocks, particularly for folks who run sort of relative value or long short books, has been challenging because stocks are not necessarily moving on kind of what you might think they should be doing. And that to me is classic price action that we do see in bear markets. Bear markets tend to you know, have these bear market rallies, for example, that declines tend to be somewhat vicious and don't always make sense fundamentally because in bear markets, what happens is you see deleveraging. You see you know, uh, active managers and passive uh, managers uh, doing things they don't necessarily want to be doing, but have to do. Um, and that creates this, what I call hall of mirrors, where you see something and you say, oh my goodness, well, that price action looks pretty good. And the reality is, is that that may be a head fake. Now, it's not always the case, but you know, when I wrote the, the line, it I think it really did describe what people were feeling from a client perspective. And you know, quite frankly, I think people somewhat agreed with it. It's been challenging, and um, it continues to be challenging in that way. You know, the funny thing, and you mentioned Japan. I was just over in Japan. I tried to time it to the yen top at one fifty, but I was close. But that's a good example. I feel like so many investors, when they look at markets, they have their worldview and they expect it to conform to their worldview in one direction and hopeful that it like kind of happens just like a stair step. But even looking back at Japan for the past thirty years, you have kind of this dominant trend. In their case, it was for a long period sideways and down. But you would have vicious rallies, you know, these up 50 or up 100 percent off the lows and the hard anxiety producing part for investors is always, is this that or is it the start of something new? So with that in mind, tell us a little bit about what's your framework for looking at the U.S. markets? What do they look like today? And we'll use that as a jumping point to get off into everything else. Yeah, so we you know, we do look at a lot of different factors to kind of navigate what we think is going to happen in the equity markets. I'd say at the fundamental level, that's really valuation and earnings. And when I look at earnings, it's usually rate of change. So rate of change on revisions, rate of change on kind of out year numbers, FY two, if you will, because that's what that that has proven to be the most efficacious factor for stocks. If you get that right, you tend to get stocks right, not just at the index level, but at the at the single stock level. So that's the core of our fundamental view, evaluation, and then kind of an earnings analysis, which we can get into more detail on that, what we're seeing currently. The second thing is we look at sentiment positioning, you know, as an important factor. You know, sentiment is very different than positioning often. Like right now, I feel like people generally are fairly neutral to bearish, but their positioning is actually more positive because of the price action. You know, folks have been forced to add more length, perhaps, than what they want to because they don't want to miss out. And that really is an asset manager predicament more than it is an asset owner predicament, although we all know that individuals are, you know, can be greedy and fearful also. The third thing, which is more, is technicals. So we, we are, uh, we're not a certified technical analyst, but we spend a ton of time on it. And we look at it for signals from the marketplace also to tell us maybe if our fundamental view is being verified. So we use the old, the Reagan tagline, trust but verify. We trust our fundamental work, but then we verify it in the marketplace to see if the market is agreeing or disagreeing. And 
you know, that, and we, it keeps us out of trouble. So we, we tend to be disciplined with stop losses and, you know, we respect the price and price action in the market because as some, you know, pretty famous investors have said, and I agree with this, that the best equity strategist in the world is not me. It's uh, unfortunately, it's the internals of the equity market. They tend to tell you if things are going to be accelerating, decelerating, if there's trouble, if there's not trouble. So that's kind of the pyramid. At certain times, we emphasize the fundamentals more so than the technicals because you're in a trending market and the fundamentals can generally keep you on track. But when you're at these important turning points, we tend to lean on the second two a little bit more sometimes because the price actions we were talking about earlier can be confusing. And we try to, to marry all three in a way that gives us a higher probability of success. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I think is thoughtful. You, you hear different people talk about it. Our buddy, John Bollinger calls it rational analysis. You know, you got the pure fundamental camp, pure technical camp, but to ignore both sides, I think is, is always makes me a little, uh, feel a little suboptimal. So, all right. So y'all's views, I don't want to preview it, but um, you can talk about it. I feel like our little non-consensus for the majority of the street right now, is that safe to say on what uh, what you're kind of expecting? And I'm speaking mainly to US stocks at this point. That's usually everyone's starting point. Do you want to tell us what uh, what you guys are seeing out there currently and, and thinking about? Yeah. So, you know, this is the other part of the, the job. You know, I, I, I have a, a privileged seat in many ways because I do get to talk to so many people so I can get real-time feedback to A, what we're saying, and B, kind of pushback and, you know, analysis, quite frankly, as to, you know, why people disagree or, or agree with us. And that keeps us kind of in the, we know where we are on the continuum of, are we consensus? Are we not consensus? And for whatever reason, you know, I'm not sure I can explain this, but since I took over this role, I guess it was in 2017, and I've been doing this for 30 years in some capacity, but this, this role is very public. And it's very engaging with all walks of clients. And I would say, for whatever reason, we've, we've ended up being in a non-consensus kind of position more often than I would have guessed. And that's both bullish and bearish. And that's turned out to be right more than, than not. I mean, we're not always right, obviously, but it's, it's, it's worked. And so I'm actually very comfortable. I'm actually most comfortable when we're very out of consensus and our work is suggesting that something is about to happen that is you know that we have high confidence and it's not priced, if you will. So I would say currently we're not like we're not extreme at the moment. You know, a lot of people do agree kind of with the view that we've had for a while. You know, we've been somewhat bearish, I would say, since you know the fall of 2021, a little bit early, which we feel is like right on time, because you want to be a little bit early. And it was based on a twofold the two-pronged approach. We called it fire and ice, which is that the Fed was going to have to tighten into this inflationary you know, wave that was going beyond what people thought, and that would hurt valuations. But then it would also lead to a slowdown. That's the ice part. And I would say we're into the second part of that now. Now, the Fed's still hiking. And by the way, we didn't expect them to be, you know, getting more aggressive three months ago. So that's actually a net negative here. But what we're really out of consensus right now is not on the Fed or on that there's a slowdown, but on the magnitude of it. So um, to give you some numbers, we believe that you know this earnings recession that we're now in, and we called for it a year ago, is early days. And I would say the consensus view three months ago was kind of in agreement with us, that the earnings were going to be significantly lower than expectations. And now, because the economy is kind of holding in better than people thought, all of a sudden, people's view on earnings is not nearly as bearish as we are. So let's, let's give you some numbers. For the S&P 500, 
we like to look at forward 12 month earnings, right? So FY2, if you will. And it peaked at $240 in June of last summer. It's now down to about $223. That's the consensus bottoms up kind of rolled up numbers, which is a reflection of company guidance, if you will. Okay. And that's how the markets trade. I would say that the, the buy, the sell side, my peer group strategists are in the 210 to 215 camp. All right. We're at 195 on a base case, and it could be as low as 180 if we end up having a recession or not, which I still think is a kind of a 50-50 coin toss. And the buy side is probably closer to my peer group, call it 210, 215. So that's a big enough delta where it's going to matter. And we think that, that earn, those earnings revisions that have you know, been coming down are going to continue for the next two, three, maybe four quarters. And it's not fully discounted. I think that this, I think what the buy side and the investment community is trying to do is say, hey, the worst is behind us looking forward. And you know, the revisions aren't necessarily going to rock it up from here, but they're not going to get any worse. And I think that's where we're different. And if we're right on our forecasts, on the earnings forecast, even if valuations stay where they are, which are rich, and we'll get to that in a minute, you've got you know 10 to 15% downside. If the valuations come down also because they're rich as you know, we think they are, you could have as much as 20 to 25% downside for many stocks and even the major averages. So that's really the crux of the argument now. Um, I think you know, we're going to get more data points in the next four to six weeks as we go into the first quarter reporting season. We think our thesis will be proven out further. And you know, that's the pattern we've been seeing during this bear market, which is the market kind of trades down in the last calendar month of the quarter in anticipation of those earnings coming down. And then when the earnings actually come down, the market rallies on hope that that's the that the worst is behind us. And we think this quarter will be no different in that regard. One of the things you talk about when you talk about kind of equity stocks, you talk about operational efficiency and one of your favorite factors today. Can you talk like what does that actually mean to you guys in the context of leverage and why is it your favorite? Well, it's our favorite currently because that's what the market's paying for. So we we follow a lot of these. That's another thing we do is, you know, I didn't put it like the other the fourth leg of the stool for us is is quantitative analysis. You know, people say we're a quantum and not a quantum. I mean, you know, if I'm looking at data, that's quantitative, right? So it's just, but this is like true hardcore quantitative analysis where we look at factor variables and other things that, that traditional quants would look at. And we, we look at it because we'd like to know what the market's paying for. We can determine certain factors are either positive drivers of stock prices or negative drivers of stock prices. And about a year ago, we came up with this factor because we just, we, we decided, hey, the the market is paying for this thing called operational efficiency. What is that? It means that companies who are able to get revenues to the bottom line in a difficult operating environment. So things like inventory to sales growth, you want that lower. CapEx to depreciation, you want that lower. Labor costs as a percentage of cost of goods sold, lower. Those are all good variables right now. That's what the market's paying for. And I find it really fascinating. If you listen to some of these big tech companies, they've started talking about efficiency. One in particular, I'm not mentioning names on this call, but like one in particular said, this is a year of efficiency. Kind of interesting, right? They, you know, they've sort of figured out, hey, that's what the market wants. That's what we're going to give them. And so that's what's been driving uh, stock price performance uh, over the last 12 months. And we think it makes sense because if we're right about our operating leverage thesis, meaning the pandemic, you know, a lot of companies over-earned because revenues came roaring back before costs came in. Now it's the exact opposite, right? Which is that costs are now exceeding revenue growth because of the timing, the delay in terms of the, the, the cost going to balance sheet first, then they roll through the income statement. And 
So this operational efficiency factor will remain, we think, in favor until one of two things happens. Either price you know, comes down far enough where stocks get so cheap that people say, well, I'm looking through it now. Or we see the earnings come down in a way because companies have dealt with this enough that they've gotten ahead of it. We think they haven't gotten ahead of it yet. We think there's going to be more and more cuts on costs because ultimately the cost structure are out of whack with the revenue growth. When you think about factors, you know, it's always interesting to me, particularly in the media and just kind of the narrative about, you know, what what is forefront? And that changes by, I guess, mostly like what are people worrying about? But it seems like the big macro one in the past year or two, which is reasonable, has been inflation, which is something for the better part of my career has been a one way street in the U.S. Now, of course, abroad, it's a different story, but but certainly in the U.S. And that seems to have changed. How are you guys thinking about it? We're we're down off the peak, but, you know, where do you guys fall in sort of the, the outlook and impact that that inflation may have? So inflation, as you know, is something we haven't really had to deal with for the last 30 years. And there's a lot of variables and I'm not going to go through all of them, but the easy ones are, you know, we've, we've kind of globalized our workforce. We had fracking and other energy sources that kept, you know, energy costs lower. The Fed and, the, you know, because of the financial crisis, everything is cost, the cost of capital precipitously low, the technology boom, which led to productivity and you know, lower cost structures, et cetera. And sadly, all of those things are now going in the other direction. So this kind of, you know, exit from secular stagnation or financial repression, okay, is is not temporary. This is a permanent exit, which, by the way, is a good outcome once we get through the adjustment period of that. So the way we've been thinking about inflation is, you know, when, when we went into the pandemic, we were already writing about this thesis that the next recession was going to likely lead to a fiscal bonanza that would allow us to break out of the secular stag. That's what we needed, quite frankly, to you know get out of this trend and actually get inflation and get on a different path, like in the 40s and 50s. In the 40s and 50s, it was obviously World War II that did it. This time, it was a global pandemic. You could call it a war, you know, this health crisis. Now, I wasn't expecting a pandemic, obviously, when it happened, but when it hit, because we had already been thinking about this, it made it very easy for us to pivot. And we said, look, this is going to be wildly positive for stocks because they're going to do monster fiscal and monetary, and we're going to get inflation. Inflation, when you're going from 0% inflation to something higher, it's really, really good for stocks. It's really, really bad for bonds, but it's really, really good for stocks. And so we caught that whole move in 2021 on the basis of this idea that inflation now is positively correlated to stock prices. So forget all the stuff we learned over the last 30 years where, you know, stocks are negatively correlated to the rate of change on inflation. They're now positively correlated to the rate of change on inflation. Why? Because that determines earnings growth. And we're now into an era where stock prices are going to be determined by earnings growth more so than financial alchemy, okay, or financial repression, whatever you want to call it, lower rates, higher multiples. That era is over. And so that's why Another reason why I think stocks have actually held in better than maybe people thought over the last couple of months is because inflation has started to tick up again a little bit, right? That, we just got that data and people are like, well, that should be really bad for stocks. But it, we're in this little weird period where people are like, well, that means maybe we're not going to have a recession. Earnings don't have to come down. So the way we think about it really simplistically is that higher inflation increases your operating leverage all else equal, okay? And more importantly, operating leverage can go both ways. So in 2020 and 21, it was positive. Now it's negative. 
and eventually will turn positive again, but not this year. It'll be something next year. So we're into this boom bust environment. It's driven by higher volatility in all economic variables, but particularly inflation. So it's not the 70s. It's the 40s and 50s where you get hot inflation and it comes down and you need to learn how to kind of trade that in both bonds and stocks, but particularly for stocks. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, well, let's hear it. So, you know, as we all know, the stock market's just a big amalgamation of uh, different sectors and industries that respond, you know, quite a bit differently through the various cycles. You know, as we kind of getting near the end of the first quarter of 23, it's hard for me to say, are there particular areas that you think in, in this sort of outlook that look better than others or said differently, worse than others to avoid too? Absolutely. And, you know, basically it's things that are geared to this environment where, you know, they can benefit from higher prices, number one, but also what we think is going to be real investment as opposed to what I would call financial investment. So if you think about the last 30 years where, you know, the real cost of capital is below, you know, kind of whatever the rate of growth, I mean, it doesn't make sense to invest capital in risky projects. What you should be doing is borrowing money at negative real rates and buying back your stock. And that's essentially what the you know the successful stocks did. Not every business is geared to be doing that. So basically, anything that's long duration and has any growth, okay, or you know, or both, even better, uh, they can reinvest you know cheap capital into either M and A or share buybacks or things that are like financial engineering. That those have been the big winners. But now going forward, you need to think about who's going to benefit from real capital investments. That would be areas like industrials, financials some of the commodity complex, including materials and energy. Technology will also be a winner, parts of it, because technology is basically capital investment. You know, one thing I just want to say up front here, you know, people think about technology, they always say, well, you know, technology is like a growth industry. Okay, that's true. But it's also deeply cyclical. So I think we're going to, I think we're going to have, uh, what I really think is going to be the case going forward is it's going to be a much more democratic stock market. You know, if you think about the last 15 years, it's been a handful of stocks, literally 10, 20 stocks that have carried the day. And now what we're going to see is, you know, many different types of businesses participate in this environment. And we have to go, it's going to be much more idiosyncratic. So what I'm saying is that you can have, instead of saying, I want to own consumer goods companies, you know, no, I want to own the consumer goods companies that's a good operator. Okay. The one that can actually capture this margin and then not squander it away when you, know, you get a headwind. And that's what we're seeing. So pretty optimistic, quite frankly, over the next three or four years, because this really fits our, our framework. This is how we invest. We're cycle analysts, not to be confused with psychoanalysts, which I might be as well, but cycle analysts. And if you understand these cycles, it could be quite profitable, but it's very, very different than what most investors have experienced the last 10 or 20 years, which is just like you buy the best companies, you hold on to them and just let it rip. Um, that's not going to work as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of somewhere that hasn't worked well for a long time is foreign markets, various, you pull up charts of some country stock markets and they haven't hit new highs and in some cases, many decades. What's y'all's view outside our borders, foreign developed, foreign emerging? Are they uh, interesting? Are they kind of playing along to the same, similar themes or is it a totally different story? No, it's, uh, it, this is going to be probably one of the biggest you know, shifts of capital we've ever seen in history, which is so in the last 10 or 15 years, what's happened is we've seen 
the greatest concentration of of assets in U.S.-based assets, or greatest concentration of wealth in U.S.-based assets. Why? Because the dollar's been strong and the U.S. has the highest quality assets in the world that benefit from a lower interest rate environment, low inflationary environment. So they all got bid up. And what's going to happen now is that money needs to be redistributed to other parts of the world that are more geared to the world I just described. Now, because of the pandemic, you know, this isn't, we're not all synchronized right now, right? We had different stages of recovery, the U.S. being the most robust because we stimulated the most aggressively. But most of the world is still hasn't really recovered yet from the pandemic. So there's a lot more pent up demand in Asia in particular. That's the region of the world we think is, you know, probably the most attractive right now in terms of stocks, followed probably by, you know, parts of Europe and Japan and the developed world. So basically it's EM, then developed world outside the U.S. and then the U.S. Now, the U.S. could become just as attractive if we get a reset on valuation, which is what we're expecting this year. So the U.S. isn't going to be left behind. I just think your entry point is much more important. But to answer your question directly, we should see a uh, repatriation or redistribution of money away from U.S. dollar-based assets to other assets. And that's another thing to be, to be, that investors should be considering is currency. You know, there's going to be probably over the next two, three, four years a pretty weak U.S. dollar market. And that means some of your return as a U.S. dollar investor is through the currency, whether it be euro, sterling, uh, yen, even some degree. And then, of course, emerging market uh, currencies, which are in a much better shape than they were you know, probably over the last 25 years. Damn it, Mike. So your views, unfortunately, align too much with uh, the way we think. So I'm going to try to be a little more devil's advocate here. So I think a lot of investors, they would go back to both you and I in this discussion and say, all right, Mike, I hear what you're saying, but I feel like I've heard that every year for the past five years. Like the U.S. has had this amazing run. It's it looks more expensive. And I'm not saying this is your view, but I'm just saying like for people who have allocated to foreign, what do you think is going to drive this eventual shift in both sentiment narrative and then eventual kind of relative strength outperformance between the two? It may have already happened, but what do you think? Well, as you know, anybody who's done this for more than five minutes, relative strength always drives, you know, flows. So, but, and, and so, and, and by the way, the, that relative strength has to be a bit more persistent than four months, right? So like Europe is outperformed for four months and people are doing cartwheels. So, you know, and I haven't heard people this bullish on Europe in quite a while. Now I'm not that bullish on the European stock market if the US is going to do what I think it's going to do in the short term. But over the intermediate term, there should be more money uh, going into those assets because they're cheaper and they offer more exposure to global growth, which is where the growth engine should be. So that the big difference, the big change, I would say, well, first of all, U.S.-based assets just got too expensive, right? So they're no longer attractive. Secondly, the big winners are being exposed, okay, as having been, you know, the biggest over-earners during COVID. So, I mean, in October, that was probably the sea change event. So in mid-October, earnings being reported, um, the top four or five, you know, big tech stocks did not have particularly good quarters. They, they all sold off by literally 15%, which is a huge number on a quarterly report. There was one that did not, but the, the majority of them sold off significant. And that money decided to reallocate itself to, in the US, industrials and financials. And then it left and went to Europe 
and it went to Asia, uh, in particular China, because of this China reopening. So I think that was step one. Uh, that was the first real sign that this is, you know, not going to be just a temporary shift. And that was also when the dollar topped, by the way. And the dollar is down 10% from those highs, which suggested that money was leaving the U.S. It wasn't just U.S. investors reallocating. It was, it was actually global investors reallocating. So I call that the kickoff move. I think that's important. And then the, you know, what's going to perpetuate it is relative growth, okay, and then you know, kind of relative currency strength, and I would argue relative, you know, behavioral differences. So if you actually looked at the United States balance sheet and you looked at their current account deficit, you looked at our, you know, uh, balance of payments deficits, you looked at kind of how we run policy, the off balance sheet liabilities that we had, and you would you would kind of say to yourself, this almost looks like an emerging market. <laughs> You're like, these numbers are like absurd, absurdly bad. And I think you know the world's been waiting for that moment where they say, well. I got to own dollar-based assets because it's working, the relative strength argument. And now once that's cracked, it will kind of build on itself. But I think the other driver that I think most people are kind of figuring out, like this deglobalization wave, you know, the multipolar world, you know, that the U.S. is not this hegemony sort of, you know, unipolar leader. And then, of course, the more recent uh, actions on the back of the Ukraine-Russia war uh, where people are trying to de-dollarize, right? So now China's buying oil from Russia in rubles or whatever, current, not the dollar, that's for sure. Same thing for India. We're seeing you know, China really trying to drive every transaction into yuan. And you know, I think there's this desire by the rest of the world to de-dollarize because you know, nobody wants to be held basically prisoner by the dollar-based payment system, and everything else. So that's a secular change that has a lot of people around the world, a lot of countries around the world who want that to succeed. So that, that, those, are, those are powerful drivers that, could, that, that would suggest that, you know, this is going to be more persistent. You know, China probably, to me, nowhere else generates more barbell binary views than almost anything right now. I feel like um, talking to advisors, uh, talking to individuals, talking to institutions, you know, who kind of, particularly those who went through the experience in Russia and are kind of stuck with their Russian equity investments. And Russia is a lot smaller compared to, say, China. But how much do you guys talk about, think about what's the sentiment from kind of the big money on China? Because presumably, it equity market looks really cheap. It's been gone nowhere slash down. But on the other hand, People worry about a similar playbook with Taiwan, et cetera. How are you guys thinking about it as they get to be a bigger and bigger piece of both the global economy as well as the global stock market? Yeah. So, I mean, our team in Asia did a really good job of kind of being early on the upgrade, going into the reopening sort of trade, if you will, if you want to call it that. I think from a big money investor standpoint, they sort of abandoned China last year, became quote unquote uninvestable because of some of the tensions that were going on, but also this fear about, well, is the money really mine and a rule of law questions, et cetera. So that created a, a very cheap asset that um, with a catalyst, meaning the reopening was a, was, a, was a pretty good time to step in there. So like I said, our team, our team had nothing to do with me. 
but our team did a great job kind of you know getting into that area at the right time. One of the things we haven't really hit on yet that much, we kind of covered the stocks part of the world, is a kind of real assets and also fixed income. We didn't dip too much into bonds and how they're looking. If everyone's starting to salivate again over 5% yields, it's a weird thing to even say anymore. We didn't talk too much about commodities and sort of the real estate part of the world. So I'm going to let you pick. You can take a left or take a right at the intersection. If you have anything particularly strong viewed on the fixed income or real asset part of the world, let's hear it. You know, I'll, I'll try to do both pretty quick. I mean, the, the fixed income one, I think, is pretty straightforward in the sense that at least for U.S. dollar-based assets, I mean, I will tell you this, Matt, I, mean, I am still somewhat shocked that the Fed was able to get to 5% without causing some sort of cataclysm. Okay, now, if you're a crypto investor, maybe it was a cataclysm, or if you invested in profitless growth companies, it was you know, pretty nasty. But like, yeah, the economy's functioning. We had, you know, things are slowing for sure, but like that's a win. Okay, so in other words, we're we're out of the financial repression era like quickly, and um, what that also does is it creates an alternative, a safe alternative for investors who don't really want to go out on the risk curve so far. Right, but in the last fifteen years, you've just been financially repressed into taking outrageously high risks because you weren't getting anything out of your cash now. You get 5% plus on cash. So there's no need to really go out the curve unless you're trying to take some recession you know, uh, insurance out. But I'm not so sure that that's going to really work that well in the near term because the Fed's not really done with their job. So look, front end, I think we're very bullish on front end rates just to have heavier, whatever safe money is, you know, shorten your duration, uh, be there, take your proceeds in and be patient with then putting that capital to work in the riskier asset parts of the market, like stocks, real estate, and real assets. So on the real asset side, look, this stuff is underpriced. You know, if we're if we're going to do all these wonderful projects everybody's excited about, like building better infrastructure in the United States, building green energy facilities, re, you know, really revamping essentially the energy infrastructure around the world. By the way, investing further in traditional fossil fuel infrastructure because we need a bridge. This is massive dollars. I mean, massive amounts of money going into these areas that will take time. In other words, ultimately, it will lead to lower prices for commodities. But in the short term, you know, I think commodity, commodities and things levered to that uh, build out. So, you know, you can talk about energy or copper or lithium or these things that you're going to need for, for these projects. But then you can also talk about the CapEx that's going to be required to build this stuff out and and the iron ore that's going to be required to build these facilities, the copper is going to be required to do these facilities. That's a 10-year project or a 15 or 20 or 30-year project. So I just think, you know, we don't have a lot of these resources. They've been underpriced for years. It's they're probably into a secular bull market. You know, commodities are volatile. So you have to understand it's going to be a bumpy ride, but it should be a bigger part of people's portfolios for sure in this world. Yeah. I was just trying to think if we've managed to make it nearly all the way through this podcast without saying the word phrase yield curve. You may have said it. I'm not sure, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's like the only thing I hear all day long on uh, on TV anymore is yield curve. As we start to wind down, A, we can feel free to talk about anything you feel like we've missed. But, you know, one of the things that I like talking about is there's a lot of consensus in the world as far as commonly repeated beliefs about investing markets. And so this one, you may need to take a second to noodle on. But uh, we have a Twitter thread that I repeat mine. But it's what investment belief do you have 
that the vast majority of your professional peers, so it's like 75%. So most of them believe this thing. And so it can either be a framework or it can be even be an idea or just a view of the future, whatever it may be. What, what is something you believe that when you talk to all your CIO buddies, they, it's not something that they would agree with you on? Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I'm glad you went down this path. This is something I'm really uh, focused on right now. I've been focused on it for probably 15 years, which is, it's amazing to me how consensus, quote unquote, professional forecasters have become. And there's a simple reason for that. They've all become overly reliant on guidance from a higher power to tell them what's going to happen. And in a world where economic variables are quite predictable and suppressed, if you will, and there's not a lot of variation, that works really well. So there's two things I would say that really got the ball rolling. First, it was Alan Greenspan for the Fed, who started you know, doing the whole forward guidance thing and talking, you know, kind of the whole communication, which is the total opposite of Volcker, obviously. And then that has, has just gotten so out of control now, you know, four Fed chairs later, where they literally have to, you know, send out a press release to tell us when they're going to the bathroom. I mean, it's, and then not only that, but they have like 15 of these people running around all day, you know, contradicting each other. Yet the markets continue to hang on their every word, the bond market in particular, such that, you know, if they make a move, the bond market prices it immediately. Rather than thinking for itself saying, hey, you know, these guys are human. We're in a very volatile period. Like, why are we holding ourselves so closely aligned with their quote unquote forecast? And so what happens is there's no dispersion in the forecasting which means that when something happens that's unexpected, the price action is way worse, okay? Now, I think the same thing has happened in stocks, and this really began with fair disclosure after the tech bubble blew up, right? They went to this fair disclosure rule where companies had to essentially send out an 8K or whatever. They couldn't speak to investors individually anymore, which is a good rule, by the way. They had to disseminate information freely and publicly. The problem with that is, is that then once you start giving people this stuff, then they, it becomes like an addiction. So now companies, they spend an inordinate amount of time at conferences, you know, preparing their conference calls every quarter in a way like it's almost like a Broadway show, right? I mean, you know, it's like it's so much attention is being paid on how are we going to guide and lead the witness and the investment so that we can manage earnings, et cetera. And so what's happened is the consensus earnings forecasts, dispersion is like non-existent. It's just, it's basically right on top of whatever the guidance is, not understand, and this is, and this is, a, this is a long answer to your question, but the, the punchline is, I don't listen to this stuff. I, I mean, not because I'm such a great forecaster, but I know that's not going to be the answer. So, And I'm not going to make any money if I'm just following whatever the consensus view is. So I, what I look for are situations where I feel like I'm out of consensus. By the way, the consensus is right 80% of the time. So you don't want to fight it necessarily. But there are times when you're like, holy smokes. I mean, like this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We got to go the other way. And I'll give you two examples. One was December of 2021 when 10-year treasury yields were trading like, I don't know, 170 on a 10-year. And you know, inflation's running like six, seven, eight percent. And you know, Jay Powell already told you after he got renominated that he was going to be tougher. And I remember talking to like the bond folks going, hey, 
you know, like 10 year 170, that doesn't seem right. Like, I think we should be wildly short this thing. And this is going to be a problem for stocks. And like, well, yeah, I mean, but, but like, that's what the Fed's saying. They're only going to raise 50 basis points next year. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I mean, like, it's so out of bounds with like react now. And having said that, by the way, I never would have thought they'd raise 450 basis points, but I knew it wasn't going to be 50. So that's it. But that, that's not a tough call, right? Just saying like that, that's not right. And now this is why I'm so convicted on our earnings view where all of our models are saying like the earnings are just way too high based on the margin profile, based on this negative operating leverage thesis that we've laid out in detail. And our forecasts are so out of bounds with the quote unquote consensus. This is a fat pitch. So that's where I think, you know, I think a lot of people would, they don't, they're not comfortable getting away from these higher powers and what they're saying. And that's a, that's an opportunity, you know, quite frankly. Means career risk, you know. I mean, I think anytime you move outside of the normal, safe middle part of the road, it, it gets uh, really uncomfortable. I mean, my favorite sentiment example, which was always, you know, my favorite bubble when I was graduating university was late 1999. The AAII sentiment survey hit the highest bullish level it's ever hit. It like the literal worst time to buy equities in my entire lifetime as far as valuation. <laughs> I got it to the month, which always makes me smile. Mike, last question while we uh, while we got you here. This has been a lot of fun. What's been your most memorable investment? As you look back over your career, it could be good, it could be bad, it could be uh, in between, but just something that's seared into your brain. Anything come to mind? Yeah, it was an easy one because it was my first investment. And um, so my mom was a financial advisor and she kind of gave us some uh, financial literacy. And, and she said when we were younger, it's like, you know, you, you should pick a stock that you think might work, you know, just based on your experiences. So I'm 13 years old, 1980. And, um, you know, I, I said, you know, there's this company called Nike, which uh, makes some really cool running shoes that my buddy, who was like a track star, loved. This is before they did basketball. I mean, it was like early days. And, and I think this is going to be a big winner. I mean, everybody wants these shoes. So whatever, dumb luck, you know, Peter Lynch style of investing of just, you know, no, you know, buy what you know. And the rest is history. I mean, this thing has still to this day been not including option trades, but like still the biggest investment I've ever made in terms of percentage returns and uh, helped me pay for college. And I was hooked, of course, after that. So that one sticks out. It's an easy one. By the way, on that one, you learn the most important lesson, which is hard. I mean, I had so many people, the struggle of holding a winner, right? Like being a true trend follower is really hard to do because you see something double. You want to think, oh, my God, A, I'm brilliant. I can do this again to infinity. But B, what am I going to spend this on? You know, is it going to be, um, you know, college, it would have been spring break or a new car or whatever it may be. But, you know, every 10 bagger or 50 or 100 bagger was once a two bagger. And so it's hard to hold on to those suckers. I say, unfortunately, I didn't learn that lesson. I, I did it in that one. And then, of course, now I never hold on it that long. So, uh, you know, some lessons. Are yet and, and by the way, I gave you a winner. I could give you, you know, 100 losers, which I probably learn more from, quite frankly. And that's, and look, that's the game, as you know. I mean, you're, you're going to be wrong a lot. And you just got to understand that's, that's part of the game. When you start a brokerage where it's like the anti-Robin Hood that it forces you into holding periods of you designate at the beginning, whatever, one, three, five, ten years, 
and then you're still allowed to sell it, but it like it hits you with a fat penalty on on the redemption. I think uh, that there's a business model in there somewhere. VCs hit me up, Mike. This has been a lot of fun. Where do people uh, find you? They want to find your writings. You got a good podcast. I meant to start this. Like, what do you say at the beginning of it? Let's get it on. No, it's close to it. Let's get after it. Yeah. So that's uh, that's called uh, Thoughts on the Market. It's on Spotify and Apple, so it's uh, available to anybody. They find us out there, and it's not just me. There, we have. The whole research department does something every week, and they're three, four-minute listens, so it's it's quite popular. That's the easiest one. People should probably just pick up. Awesome. Mike, uh, we'll have to have you on and check in in the future. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you, Matt. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.